Colorado. We're just going to have a very free-form discussion. Um, if we open up the audience as well, feel free, you know, yeah, we can shout out questions. We're just going to talk about the beautiful, magical realm we live in. I was sitting by the fire and it was literally And how, really, there's so much that the Matrix world doesn't let us know about, or they don't want us to know about, and stuff that we discuss on AlphaCast with Dr. Bear Lando. you buddy and uh, we are so fortunate to have Chance Garten here who has one of my probably my favorite podcast interverse if you guys aren't familiar go check it out they go deep into all these amazing topics that I love and Kelly Brogan's here that's a special treat so I want to uh, start with a little song from Hulda going to come out and start this get this party started what do you know for sure marcia ann's older brother would ask her that i guess every time he saw her marcia ann was the keynote speaker at liberty's horizon in, in uh, end of april in san diego she was also the main presenter at the i am the living law workshop at alphabetic gardens so this is what do you know for sure. What do you know for sure? What do you know for sure, for sure? What do you know for sure? The question of the hour, month, and year. The earth is round, the earth is flat. What do I know about that? We are finite, we're eternal. Where do I find truth's kernel? Evil bugs, they make us sick. Bugs are friends that make us tick. Stage fright. <laughs> Poisons and lacks do us in. It's really emotions under our skin. What do you know, what do you know, what do you know for sure? What do you know, what do you know, what do you know for sure, for sure? Evildoers are out there. We allow them in the town square. It's all fiction, it's all real. Round and round goes the wheel. Chi is rice and chi is steam and everything else in between. Holy ghost, holy cow. What is time other than now? What do you know? What do you know? What do you know for sure? What do you know? What do you know? What do you know for sure? For sure? For sure? For sure? For sure? For sure? Sometimes I can't stop. You're the bomb. Give it up for Hulda. All right, welcome to the one within all. That's how I like to introduce my own show. So I'm gonna take us away with that idea that 
the life force energy is the thing about the cosmos that is one. And that one is within and around all of us. So welcome to the one within all. And I'm feeling super blessed to be here with my older friend Eileen. I've known her for a while. New friend Alec. Brand new friend Kelly. This is our first time meeting right here in this moment. And uh, Micah set us up with the idea that we should talk about the magical realm. So that can take us into a lot of places. And what I would like to open up with in terms of getting us thinking about this in our train of thought is how we've been conditioned in many ways and it's a comfort thing through the structure of our language the structure of music and even what we look at as calendrical systems of time to believe that nature operates in perfect cycles in this type of numerical rhythmic harmony that's consistent and the same every time and that's not really working out very well for us, as it turns out, to look at the world that way, in my opinion. And an example I could give of that is how we have seven notes to create a scale, or 12 notes, or 12 zodiac signs, or these stories and archetypes that are almost ingrained in our DNA, that become a framework for storytelling in our own lives where we compare our lives to that story constantly that there needs to be a defined beginning, middle, and end, a rising action and conclusion that is neat. And the truth of nature is that there's a lot more wiggle going on. <laughs> and that's kind of what I want to talk about. I'll throw out there even uh, maybe a new idea for many of us who've been questioning things like the shape of the earth or uh, germ theory, terrain theory. What if even the concept of a year of a calendar. What if we're wrong about even that? What if nature doesn't do the same thing the same way ever? That is a constant rhythmic uniqueness, not consistency, not a box, not a form to be stuck in. That's what I'd like to offer as a possibility. That not even 365.25 days is an accurate measure of a year. That it's different every year, slightly. There's wiggle, there's variation, there's freedom. We're not stuck coloring within the lines. Uh, what do you guys think about that panel? Anyone want to weigh in? Should we go in a line? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. We'll start, start with Eileen. Okay, well, that, that makes me think of a few things. Um, in sound healing, we have this thing called the sound healing time warp, which you've experienced. And it's a place where time, the, our experience of time changes a lot. And, uh, and it makes you realize that... Um, that time doesn't exist in the way that we think it does. So what I'm really coming to see is that we've been told so many things, and so those programs overlay our perception of what's really going on. We think we know what's going on, like this whole idea of, of the days and the weeks and the months, and it's all like neat and tidy, right? But when I heard the story that when they discovered the irrational numbers of pi and phi, it go on forever, right? There is no yeah. neat, tidy end to it. That it, it was such a mind blow that they sacrificed a whole bunch of cattle <laughs> because because it was the, it, it takes you from this orderly like everything is set into like the realm of infinite possibilities. So I I think what I'm learning to do is to question every single thing, right? And and how what we're told creates an overlay that stops us from seeing what's really there. 
right? Because we have these assumptions about the nature of life and just how important it is to like you're saying, question every single thing and how it's stopping you from seeing what's really there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Kelly. Open it up over there. Yeah. I know. I'm like, <laughs> I'm at the wrong party. <laughs> <laughs> I know I like to think a lot these days in terms of masculine, feminine polarities and maturational uh, processes in each domain. And I know that I had to do a good bit of healing to get to the place where I could embrace inquiry and challenge what it is that I thought I knew. So to let go of that certainty and then begin to delight in not knowing, right? Like that I think of as a maturational phenomenon. And so, at this point, every time I find out that what I thought was true is not, like every deception that's exposed is like delightful to me. It's funny, it becomes funny. And that wasn't always the case. And so, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the calendrics, I think for me there's, um, I remember Charles Eisenstein talks about this too, like there's a, col a co collective evolution, like reality is itself potentially evolving, right? So maybe we have to get to the place where we no longer experience the masculine structure as a rigid, dominant force that never changes and always is, right? Maybe it's a phenomenon of co-presence, right? So maybe it's not the 365.2 days. Maybe it's the structure that we're seeking is just present to the energetics, right? So it's not exactly that rigid, um, dogmatic, understanding of the container, right? That's that's sort of what comes to me. And the one thing to throw in there is that many ancient cultures like the early Egyptians practiced multiple calendars simultaneously. So they had the 13 moon calendar and a solar calendar and another calendar all at the same time. So they weren't as dependent on just one polarity like sun or moon only. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, respecting the the gendered nature of the the con the construct of reality that we're in. I say construct, I'm not saying reality is fake. <laughs> but our mental construct of it is an overlay, like Eileen's saying, that our, our language even uh, becomes like a metaverse, oddly enough, that what we... S the way that we use language as an operating system for thought because thought has energetic form to it like the biofield proves the biofield hypothesis Eileen has put forward into our space then we are actually potentially creating a type of if you're familiar with the term egregore or thought form or even a, a type of living entity that that uh <laughs> <laughs> that we're feeding with the more that we observe it as reality. And like Baudrillard in the book Simulation and Simulacra talks about with hyper-reality. What is hyper-reality? It is how media, and language is a form of media actually, creates the sense uh, in us that the reality itself, nature, is somehow unreal because as we've overlaid our perception with this filter, of language and of belief, then when nature doesn't adhere to what, say, the news said nature is, it makes nature itself and life itself feel like it's somehow fake. So that's hyper-reality. 
it's not that reality is in any way fake. It's that this overlay gives us a dissonance from the present moment with this ling linguistic overlay. So language could be the original metaverse, oddly enough. <laughs> wow. I don't have much to add to that because you, <laughs> you guys took it all. Um, I was like, just like nodding my head like, oh yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say. Um, what, what I wonder, what that like makes me think is there's, there's this, there's like two almost opposing thoughts. It's that we need to let go and let flow, essentially, right? Like let, um, like surrender to, to reality. Can you guys hear me? Sorry, I probably have talked to my wife. We need to surrender to reality. And then there's the opposite end of the spectrum that reality is self-directed, that we are co-creating it. And I, I wonder what the play is between the two. Is it both and? Or is it that when we are self-directed, is it that as we dissolve all illusions within ourselves, by being self-directed, as we do that, we are fundamentally doing the exact same thing as letting what flows flow, right? Like, is it, are they mutually exclusive or are they in alignment with each other? Is it the same thing? That's what that makes me think, because when we have these ideas that are presented to us that we can't determine with certainty that we know them to be true, right? We're relying on the words and thoughts and ideas of a collective belief and, and, you know, we can point to these patterns, but how do we know that they've been existing forever? And are they existing? Are they continuing to perpetuate because we're continuing to co-create them? And I just wonder how much of it is letting it flow and how much of it is we are actually continuing to create that. So I guess I like kind of put That's that a great question to put out. I, I love that. I want to add to it that the healing arts, energy healing, there is a barrier to entry, if you will, that many who begin to practice in that realm find themselves up against, which is the question of authenticity. <laughs> I heard it once said to me, like, you know, if you're having imposter, the feeling of imposter syndrome, the, the, the solution to imposter syndrome is don't be an imposter. <laughs> and like that, that actually clicked for me very helpfully. And what I eventually came to understand that helped me out a lot, and this applies to all spheres of life actually, is that in our fear of our own power and fear of taking deeper levels of personal responsibility, the healing uh, path of an energy worker definitely is like a microcosm of this, but it applies to everything that's a, a creative path or a spiritual path in a sense. That our deference to authority, that there's a right way to do something and we're worried that we'll do it wrong and we need someone else to tell us what the right way is so that we can fill in all the, check in all the boxes and get the answers right on the test or whatever. But when you find yourself actually touching the flow state and really addressing a problem with somebody that's in the moment, you find yourself in this zone of feeling like I'm making it up as I go. <laughs> and that's a really important threshold to cross into, that if your intentions are aligned and purely good or harmonious, making it up as you go does not make you a fake. It actually aligns you with source, with creator, with great spirit, because that's what the creative intelligence of cosmos is doing at all times, making it up. <laughs> that's what it means to be, that's what creativity means. So it's re really helpful to be able to 
recognize that. And as you were questioning, Alec, like, is it one or the other? It's kind of both, because when you collapse that duality uh, and you're really spirit-led or source-led, you making it up as you go is the same as the divine intelligence or the most high or the higher self working through you. There, there's no longer a conceptual separation between the two, right? Yeah, that's, and, kind of, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Is it like as we dissolve all illusions and really align and have a clear channel that we are, by virtue of um, co-creating, right? We are not even co-creating. We are just creating because source is flowing through us. That's what I was trying to get at. Exactly. And the thing to kick it over to Eileen, one thing that I read in her book that was really profound to me and helped me a lot was when she admittedly said the biofield anatomy hypothesis could be purely imaginary. And I was like, that actually makes way more sense. That isn't our language imaginary? Is something a tree? Is nature calling it a tree? You know, is a deer named a deer? It is, is what it is. It's the concept of the I am presence, pre-language. So language is useful though, because it can describe truth. It can point you to truth. It, it can be accurate description of truth, but the language itself is still made up. And our bodies are sort of like a tree grows out of a seed, right? But where did the seed go? Our bodies are, in this metaphor, the tree, and the seed is divine spark or source. So our bodies are actually the same thing as source. <laughs> there, there's no division between our vessel container of life force energy and universal life force energy. That's actually like an indivisible continuum. So to be able to communicate with that intelligence, just like any other form of communication, a language is helpful. So even though the biofield anatomy hypothesis, for example, may be an imaginary like any other language, it's something that your body can, you and your body can talk to each other through. And once you sort of memorize that map, <laughs> you unlock very deep levels of knowing that your body always had, but you've, and there's other versions of this, there's other languages, but I'll pass it over to Eileen. That's what insight her system helped me achieve is like, now whenever I have a pain or an injury or an illness, I can get the message of like, what is that relating to in my psychic realm, right? And getting stuck just isn't really, like it's way more of a choice to get stuck now. It's not confusing. Hmm. Thanks. Um, well, the biofield anatomy hypothesis is based on many years of clinical observation, many hours uh, working with clients and discovering that every time somebody came in with a left shoulder issue, they were, they were really sad. There was a lot of undigested, unexpressed sadness there. Every time somebody came in with a right knee issue, they were being blocked moving forward in some way. Every time somebody had a right hip issue, there's a lot of those out there, they were indulging busy mind, busy body. They're indulging busy, busy, going in the future, all of that. And, and so this whole pattern emerged. And, and I doubted it for a really long time. In fact, my very first group of students in 2010 who bullied me into teaching them, I didn't feel ready yet. I felt very reluctant to teach them the biofield anatomy because it was one person's subjective experience. Um, but what I, regardless of whether it's real or not, um, it showed me that our bodies are inside our minds and not the other way around, like that we've been told. And anywhere where you go out of balance in your mind, you're going to pull your body 
along with it and that there seems to be a universal pattern of, of mind imbalances affecting particular body parts. Um, so whether, you know, whether I made it up or whether it's really there, it's no matter what, it's a system that works, right? And that's or, or it could be made up in the sense that it's a language, but our bodies made it up, not you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I had a hard time believing that I was kind of observing something that, you know, I, I questioned my own observation. I'm skeptical, right? We're all skeptical. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So I was very skeptical about my own observation and, and the observation of a single person. But I want to come back to another thing that you're talking about. When you think about it, it's all one water, right? I mean, it's all one water. It, it, it separates into puddles and streams and clouds and whatnot, but it's really all one water. Um, and our bodies are 99% uh, of our molecules, allegedly, <laughs> uh, <laughs> are water. And so the water that's in, so, and water has memory. And we, we know this from uh, wonderful people who have worked with water. Uh, it's interesting that we, we can accept that sand and silica can hold information, but, you know, that's a crystal. Water is a crystal, but we can't accept that that holds information, which I think is part of the AMA's attempt to discredit homeopathy, honestly, is where the sort of denial of the intelligence of water. Um, but where our bodies are also plasma, they're electricity, they're light. Now you have an electrical system, that's your biofield, it's electric current running through you, the magnetic field around you. And, and it's all one light. And the, the light that's powering you is the same light that's powering the sun, that's powering all of us. So inside of our own bodies, we have forces of nature that have been around since the beginning, that know everything. And we've been so programmed to look to authorities to tell us. So I've encountered this over and over again with tuning forks. People are like, well, I got tuning forks and I didn't know what to do with them. Well, I didn't know what to do with them either. <laughs> <laughs> and I started, I started playing with them and trusting my own Play. observation. Yeah, trusting my own observation, trusting my own inner teacher, trusting my own inner, trusting my senses. Really just trusting, what am I hearing? What am I feeling? What am I noticing? Oh, when I do this, that happens, right? And so when people say to me, well, how do I treat this? What do I do that? I'm like, well, you've got the answers inside of you. So why don't you just ask and find out? That's all I ever do. And people are like, oh, <laughs> you mean I can be my own authority? Right. So this do is I just have another. Permission? Yeah. This is just another <laughs> one of those programs about not trusting our own senses, not trusting ourselves, not letting ourselves play because we're afraid we're going to do something wrong. Yeah. Right. So just think that it's really important you do just by the nature of you are nature you're not part of nature like you are nature and and all of the wisdom and all of the accumulated experience of nature is inside of you and it's completely accessible if you just ask and trust what comes in so kelly alec guess we weigh in on this i'm really interested in the what you touched on Kelly a little while back regarding the genders or polarities being an important factor in your further ability to perceive uh, truth accurately, if that makes sense. Because this is really important to the alchemy idea that basically uh, is a perfect symbolic microcosm fractal of how nature does everything. With these, uh, with this component of like salt, sulfur, mercury, uh, mother, father, child, etc. I was, I was thinking actually a more interesting question than that. No offense. Is, <laughs> is um, 
what you were mentioning about being right, and you just mentioned it too, and I wonder what it's going to take for us to graduate to a place where that is not the primary vector through which we express our vital force, right? Like where the urge, the impulse, the desire, the attachment to being right. And of course, the corollary to that is that somebody, something, some other is wrong, right? And so- If we're trying to be right, what about left? (laughs) That's good. Um, the, I, I've talked about this idea of like putting on the villain crown, right? Like, which is just a nervous system, really. It's a nervous system level of, um, self-soothing and self-security and potentially maturation where you can tolerate being perceived as bad and wrong, Mm. particularly by a source that you value, right? And that you have... Um, attributed some degree of import to. And I'm not sure that we can make a lot of progress or that we can even reclaim our power of choice um, until and if we get to this place where we are comfortable being bad and wrong and where we don't need the opposing perspective because we're so in this polarity dimension where, you know, <laughs> like the, the, our prelude described, you know, it's, it's round or flat, it's, you know, terrain or germ, and it's, you know, black or white, and gay or straight, and man or woman, and um, how do we get to this place where we can choose and discern instead of judging, blaming, shaming, and condemning? I mean, I'm certainly working on it every day, and I know that it requires that I get to this place where I can hold in my body the sensation of shame, the sensation of rejection, the fear of abandonment. I mean, this is what underpins all of this. And that's why, you know, Paula was talking about how if we don't get to this place where we can begin to explore those edges, we're just going to require, as I often do, require that I be around people who completely agree with me. (laughs) That's the only time I can have fun, right? Or like feel good or play. And and the only time my nervous system can um, stabilize and I don't think that that's necessarily how it's designed, you know, that we silo into these compartments of total coherence. Um, so anyway, I think, I think it's a good question to, to begin to explore, like, what would it look like if it's not about being right? <laughs> I love that. It actually applies really strongly to when I alluded to music theory being a part of this, that, you know, there are sounds that are wrong. That's not, that doesn't fit the chromatic scale or whatever. <laughs> so that's a really good point. And uh, even the idea of putting on the villain crown is interesting because that, even that word, just comes villain, comes from the same root as our villagers, like our vul, vil, vulgar tongue. Vulgar means common. <laughs> common means with, on. On is the sun or the light or the source. So the common people are the, you know, the reflection of logos or source welling up naturally and that's been villainized we've been turned that word into something that means bad but what you're saying about getting comfortable with those edges and feeling into those difficult uh dissonances is super important and what can help as a mantra to get more comfortable with the uncomfortable potentials like being wrong is this uh, particular phrase 
in the words of the great comic Owen Benjamin. I might be wrong, but I'm not lying. <laughs> I think that's key. That's key to that authenticity, even though you're making it up as you go. You're telling it how you see it. Your, your intentions are good. And it's very important to be able to be wrong, but not be lying. And be, because that means that when you find out why or how you were incorrect or inaccurate, you actually gain a huge amount of power because there's very few things more powerful, few phrases more powerful than I was wrong. Because the next thing that happens is you get to correct. And that's the entire purpose of touching in and feeling into dissonance in terms of our, our energy field, how we can do this with our voice, how our voice can auto-correct our entire tune of our system if we allow it to explore where there's wobble, where it's off, where there's dissonance, and let go into that, let it out, and just sort of observe how our voice then stabilizes and strengthens and harmonizes. And it doesn't really require anything of uh, anything for us to do other than allow it and observe it, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I, I... I'm like hesitant to bring up the knowing versus believing thing because that was the talk that I gave and the discussion that we already had in the room the other day, but that's what keeps coming up for me and maybe it's just something that I'm so intrigued by right now is like the, the distinction between what we know and what we believe and something that you said, Kelly, is um, like being able to sit with not knowing and what we're doing, what all of us here are doing is we're looking at the world uh, that is run by this wild gang of nefarious actors, possibly, right? And they're asserting that they know something to be true and that we need to follow their alleged knowing, right? And what I see a lot of people in this space do, and we have to check ourselves on it sometimes too, is that we then, after dissolving that knowing, insert something else in as the fundamental knowing and then try to project that onto other people and then weaponize it against others and put ourselves in these silos. And rather than doing that, what we need to be doing is just dissolving the need to know and then project that onto others because what we're doing is we're attaching our identity to it and then when we attach our identity to it, we need to defend it to the death because we believe we are that instead of knowing that we are in this reality to continue to explore and to continue to dissolve all illusions. And I've come to the perception that when a lot of people make objective truth claims, like, oh, I know the objective truth is this. I'm like, how do you know that that is objective truth? You aren't able to see all angles of it. All we can do as human beings is continue to orient towards objective truth, but we can only scratch the surface of it with what we can perceive and know in our limited senses, right? So when we claim to know something, I think we need to be very careful. When we claim objective truth on something, I think we need to be very careful because that leads to dogma, that leads to identifying with it. It's just that it should be this never-ending process of refining and dissolving illusions and continuing just to seek truth and have the humility to be like, I was wrong on that. And rather than identifying with, I, I say this a lot, so you probably heard me say it, rather than identifying with what we've explored, what we believe, what we've perceived, identifying with the process of exploration, of believing, of perceiving, of learning, so that leads you to be continually open to new possibilities. And it's not a scary thing when you don't know anymore. I think a lot of people want to know so badly and want to uh, assert that they know something to be true because they're afraid to not know. When you're understanding that we're supposed to be on this continual journey of evolving and trying to get to that objective truth that we can oddly 
probably never reach, right? But we're just continually orienting towards it and dissolving illusions, then it's not scary to not know. It's actually comforting to not know. So. Yeah, but who in this space did not grow up in a family where blame was leveraged and <laughs> shame was leveraged to control the behavior of the children, right? So, so we've been conditioned to operate under the premise that not knowing, being wrong, not having a strong case, you know, for whose fault it is, is dangerous. Yeah. yeah. So that's why. And you use the term uh, dogma, which is a re religious term in a sense. And it's really important to recognize this, that our knowledge, our beliefs in what we think we know becomes a form of idolatry, in dogmatic idolatry. And you see this, like the, obviously the cult of scientism has made a secular religion. You know, it doesn't involve spirits or mysticism per se, but when he really philosophize about the atomist model it's just as much mysticism as hinduism or something <laughs> so what's important to recognize about this dogmatic idolatry is that idolatry anytime we do this think about the word idol what else does idol mean it means not moving idol so idolatry puts us in stagnation which gives the signal to nature to send in the cleanup crew, break this down, get this moving, destroy this, reconstitute it for new parts, whatever. So we gotta be careful with that. Um, you know, the, the way to look at the path of seeking in terms of knowledge is that the key is in asking questions. You have asking questions, you've probably heard this before, asking as king, right? That gives you uh, the real interface to the sovereignty questioning does on the quest and it is important to see how asking asking questions and being open to the branching paths that they lead to uh that that's actually the fractal of nature's dendritic pattern in the psychic or the mental realm and that it's a fuel it's a type of free energy that you see the tree with a trunk that's the first question then there's an answer that answer creates new questions, and those are the branches. Or you can see it in a lightning bolt across the sky, or the veins in your body, or the way a river looks from above. You have this constant fractal of branching paths. And if we stop at just one fork, think about what happens if water in the flow of a river and a branch gets stuck and doesn't flow anymore, stagnates. And as Eileen was saying, it's water is interconnected there's no separation of the water of this realm. That's the, another way of considering primary water. So these questions, being with the quest, with the eye on, <laughs> ready to, uh, this branching that it allows, this is expansion. This is nature's natural expansion pattern, the dendritic pattern. And that's free energy if you allow it to be. If you get stuck at one branch point, then that's, you know, <laughs> that brings about the, the death energy. And that's for a purpose too. It's to stop, it's to keep, get flow going again if you're the blockage. So, you know, that, this is uh, how nature operates. It doesn't stop with one answer. It keeps wiggling, it keeps branching, it keeps going, it keeps flowing. That makes me think about how in my early explorations of the biofield, I would encounter structures that were really hard to move and they were often in the part of the field that was under the age of seven. 
And when I listened into them, what I discovered was that they were fixed beliefs and that we cling more tightly to our beliefs than we do to anything. And yet what they do is they, they stop the questioning. But when you believe something, then you're no longer questioning anymore. And what a lot of people would hold on to would be negative beliefs about themselves. For example, a child that was left to cry it out, that was fed on a schedule that was not comforted, was not fed when they were asking to be fed or held when they needed to be held, formed a belief that nobody cares what I have to say and my needs are not going to be met. And then they go through their whole life feeling unheard with unmet needs because that belief has taken root and formed their identity. And so I would just invite you to really sleuth out where you're holding these self-limiting beliefs that are stopping questioning and movement and this branching of life going on because, because it's, it's creating a barrier between you and life that, that is false. And yet, and as we've seen in, in our friends who want to hold so tightly to the belief that pharma and government are good, um, you know, that's stopping so much growth, so much question. They just don't question. They're not open. So I think it's so important to, to really notice where we're holding those things and invite that branching to happen instead. Anybody want to weigh in? I could just add, I read an incredible book recently by a psychiatrist, um, or a couple whose books are worth reading, named uh, Alexander Lowen, and it's called Fear of Life. And I was thinking of that when you were speaking, Eileen, and how, how many um, conceive of that as being the root cause of all pathology and all suffering is that actually what we're afraid of is not death, but, but life and living, and that it starts... Um, actually in, in some sort of like a Freudian dynamic um, in our early triangles with our parents um, where we are led to experience shame around our sexuality as young, young, young children, maybe children, maybe even um, infants. Um, and sexuality in that definition is not a genital localized expression. It's vital force, right? So it is that energy that animates um, the body and you know, it could be jumping on the couch as a kid or, you know, singing too loud or yelling too loud or maybe you're caught, you know, masturbating or whatever more literally. Um, but there's this uh, fracturing where you begin to pit yourself against that animating force and you and your life force are fundamentally disconnected. Um, and whenever it recurs, especially in dynamic with the opposite gendered parent, which is again that that sort of triangulation, um, there is then a fear of consequence, right? Whether it's castration or death, um, and you know these concepts are they seem sort of like what does that have to do with anything? But the fear of punishment being coupled with the fear of your own animating life force can explain a lot of why we stay, you know, in in a half living, <laughs> slowly dying um, comfort zone of the familiar and why we would choose that, why it would make sense to choose that and why that survival mechanism is, is a wise one until and if we're ready to choose life, which in uh, I, I'm very interested in family constellation work and that's often one of the healing phrases is I choose life. You know, it's that radical um, 
it's not an abortion issue. Uh, his kids had radical uh, statement, you know, to, to depart from the programs of your ancestors who have potentially uh, ensnared, ensnared you in a death-oriented um, loyalty program, you know, and what it is to choose life is such an act of defiance. And it also requires that you be willing to look at um, the shame around your own animating energy. What you say, I will add, that is just so profound because that is exactly what the animating force itself does and did. It chooses life. The creator chooses life. And that's why there's, you know, existence instead of non-existence in a basic sense. So, like, yeah, that's uh, the, the ultimate thing is fear of living has been the probably base of the inversion in the fractal and what also pertains to this that's important is a lot of this community and i don't say this in blame or to point out anybody in particular but there's a very very old old program of they did it to us <laughs> it's coming from the top down uh the grand conspiracy the controllers the archons the, the evil god of the demiurge or whatever the version of it may be and the real the, the real obvious observation especially if you use a tree as a symbol of the fractal that is cosmos where the tree begins with roots really i mean that's the foundation things go from the bottom up that's how you build and so when we look at the fractal and the way that society is in many ways perfectly crafted to help distract us from choosing life, to help reinforce the fear, reinforce the belief of uh, authorities and boogeymen and controllers that it's outside of our control, even down to some very deep fear beliefs like, if I do the wrong thing, someone's going to punish me or even kill me. <laughs> like we even see this in certain, uh, you know, there's stories of like, this doctor or this inventor, they spoke out and they got whacked. <laughs> and we reinforce this belief constantly with our, our movies and our entertainment that uh, it's possible for your life to just be abruptly and against your will, violently and horribly cut short. And I'm sure many of us know people where they did appear to have that type of an experience and an endpoint in their life. But we can also ask ourselves, do we know anyone that that's happened to that we're sure that they authentically knew their own power and they knew their own level, uh, their, their own uh, consent or non-consent into the belief that they could be killed by the bad guys, right? Uh, I, I don't, I haven't seen it. <laughs> I don't think we have any reason to fear anything external. I think that uh, the real power we have is in the story we decide to tell ourselves about life. And that uh, the story that that it's a, a risk to do the right thing, that they're gonna get me. That's a really, I, I, it's my mission to help people out of any form of uh, the victim posture. And I get that there's a lot of seeming profit in it, but it's very short term <laughs> and it doesn't, it, there's no, not a growth paradigm there. And so with what I'm saying here, I hope the takeaway is that the system of society that we, the systems in society that we have so much of a issue with that we are working to build you know even the word alternative think about that alter native we're building alter natives to the bad system no 
the VAD system is the alter native system. <laughs> We're going back to the, the native or the natural system. So the key though is to recognize that we're not stuck in it, nothing's controlling us, not, nothing is stopping us. There's no nothing but our consent that powers it, and we don't, uh, we build the fractal from the ground up, not from the top down, that the so-called elites or masters or controllers require consent from slaves, and that's just the truth of it, that we, it's, all, it's all a mentality, it's all a choice, right? I've wondered sometimes, as somebody who has played the bad girl in a lot of different scenarios and kind of enjoyed it, um, how much it's true that we can only be punished as much as we believe we deserve to be punished. That's kind of what you were saying, right? And yeah. that maybe you cannot actually be punished by anyone or anything unless you believe you deserve to be so. You have to be a match to it. Yeah. Right? I don't want to say I want to push back, but like how much of that is, can we know with certainty that it, it is our belief that is creating that reality and that, that it's something that is simply coming up from reality happening to us? I hesitate to say to us, but it is actually, you know, not entirely self-directed. How do we know with certainty that that's the case? That's a great question. I like to fall back on a distinction in the terminology of evil that we all have probably heard evil is lived backwards. You know, that's true. But an older time, philosophers had a distinction between sort of like man-made or artificial evils and natural evils. So a lot of people, when they take on the highly victimized perspective of like that the world's a simulation or fake or that everything's a trick to harvest your energy, they'll also point out, you know, all the various forms of suffering in the world and sort of equate them as all the same. And they're they're not the same in my view that there are sufferings that you could call a natural evil like something happens like uh, you break it, your leg on a hike but now we are equipped with the knowledge thanks to work like Eileen's or German New Medicine to realize that that injury is a message from ourself to ourself so that's not really evil in the same way as uh, some kind of deeper human conflict like war for example, many people go up off to war or are soldiers and they do get killed. They get murdered, right? Uh, they murder others. That narrative, that story is possible. But does that mean that we're um, potentially like available to just be um, murdered against our will? I think it comes back to this idea of uh, natural law, why that's a really helpful and powerful concept, that there is also a type of morality baked in to the to this realm of, uh, you know, you know what I'm getting at, Alec? I, I do, I do. I, I, yeah, yeah, so the reason I ask that is not coming from a place of victimhood, just to be clear. Is simply, no, of course not. Yeah, simply to pose a question because it's like, I look at traumatic experience that, you know, I didn't have, at least not in my awareness, can direct control over that happened, but, but, and this is the big caveat, perfect example is this whole last two and a half years extremely tra traumatic on certain levels for a lot of people but it was also a godsend right because I, it pushed me deeper into my authenticity so i uh a, a book that was transformational for me was the law of one and i'm questioning a lot of the uh like a lot of the stuff behind it but nonetheless it was very transformational for me and it talks about how trauma is a catalyst like trauma is a catalyst and that can be a catalyst for positive or for negative change. It just is a catalyst. And 
I think that to a large extent, we are supposed to experience these very traumatic things to propel us into deeper aspects of ourself and deeper aspects of authenticity, or for those who are unwilling to go there, deeper aspects of, uh, you know, false beliefs and conditioning. And which lead to breakdown. Which lead to breakdown, <laughs> Which yeah. removes the stagnancy one way or another eventually. Yeah, and so that's kind of what I was getting at with that is like, Yes, I think a lot of it is our belief about that happening, but a lot of it we are also intended to experience so that it pushes us deeper and deeper and deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's all I have. <laughs> Ladies? I mean, I could give it like a weekend workshop on this subject. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> Agree. I think I always, I always think about that Alan Watts... Um, be still my heart, Alan Watts, that lecture that he gives about dreaming and how if we had the opportunity to create our own dreams, the first night we would, you know, have like all the wild sex and all, do all the drugs and eat all the food and, you know, have all the hedonistic pleasures we could conceive of. And, you know, the second night we put like a little twist in the plot, you know, just for excitement. And by the seventh night we would say like, fuck it like somebody else make up the story because we actually want to have the experience of you know hiding from ourselves, playing hide and seek with ourselves. and what you're getting at is how much of this have we chosen how much of this have we contracted for and um i don't think anybody knows that answer and there are extreme perspectives that say we actually signed up for every single thing like every experience of abuse and molestation and you know transgression and we signed up for it we chose it you know we, we affirmed that that was how we were going to um, experience the contrast that we enjoy you know shifting between these different states and then of course there's another perspective that says there's you know many factors that build an experience and it's all in your response it's all in the meaning that you make out of it right so you have your adverse childhood experience and what story, what belief gets cemented and what story do you tell yourself for the rest of your life and how does that attract, you know, more affirmation of that story. So the degree to which we are writing is what you originally said. We are writing um, our own, um, the fundamentals of our own trauma. I, I am in the perspective that we, we choose all the significant challenges beforehand. <laughs> like, okay, before life? Mm -hmm. I like that too. And one thing that people will push back on, though, will say, you're blaming the victim. Yeah, yeah, I know. And so the way I like to frame it is exactly as you said is where I'm at, but that at different stages, uh, this is a type of truth that evolves for people. So if it is more helpful for somebody to not take that level of choice responsibility into like the pre-life realm that I, I set it all up or picked all this, that's okay too. Uh, as long as what gets done maybe is that the, the trauma energy is communicated and expressed and not stuck back in the uh, past where it's running on a hamster wheel for somebody. You know, if it, if it hurts someone's feelings that you feel, they feel you're blaming them for being, blaming the victim <laughs> for the, what happened to them, that's okay. And there's probably, it's okay not to do that. Uh, you don't have to like force that perspective on them, right? Um, 
That's because they're still identifying as a victim. There's a difference between like having been victimized and identifying Mm -hmm. as a victim. If they're getting triggered by that, they're identifying as a victim. Right, and has it? It never really works that well to like tell the victim that they're identifying. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I've discovered that there's actually what I call the posture of victimhood in the biofield anatomy, and it's uh, it's. And I, I had this actually in my own experience one time when I was um, in a conversation with somebody who was making me feel powerless and making me feel like a victim. And I became aware of how my anatomy, my energetic anatomy was structured. And I realized that I was all scrunched down on my left hip, which is frustration and disappointment over unmet needs and also the powerless zone. So I was feeling sad and powerless over unmet needs. And I was telling this whole story of victimhood. And I was like, wow, look what I'm doing. And it's got this whole like energetic arrangement to it. And so what I decided to do was just like sit up straight, (laughs) align my energy to the center and then look at the equation again from a different, from getting out of the posture of victimhood. And when I changed my inner alignment and I changed my perspective, I suddenly saw a way to engage in, in that conversation from an empowered place. So simply behind sort of straightening up and flying right, um, I was no longer operating from victim consciousness, but that was very ingrained in me because I grew up as the youngest of six and got picked on and teased and was always a victim. I mean, I was truly a victim of circumstances that I couldn't control. And so that got wired into my body. And I started just looking at life through that lens. And then I realized like, oh, I just need to shift the wiring and the thoughts that are arising from that wiring. And so we can, I mean, it can be as simple as just bringing yourself back up on keel and straightening out and be like, what does it look like from this perspective of being in integrity and alignment? That's what I love about the mind-body system, if you will, or like these, these three areas that we can operate from, mental, emotional, physical, you could say, uh, that if, there's, if you're kind of stuck on one of those areas, you adjust in the other, and it allows flow elsewhere. So I think that's part of why we create this type of an experience in physicality where things are kind of slowed down, they're denser, right? That it allows us to have spiritual movement sometimes where belief freezes that, uh, where we can help somebody that maybe isn't ready to take responsibility and release the, I'm a victim of circumstance narrative, but if you help them shift their posture you know, they, they, you don't even have to address the story they're in, then they will maybe energetically start to get it on their own. So we have, it's really awesome. We have many tools. We can approach problems from many different angles. <laughs> Does anyone have any else, like any other yeah, fun topics to cover or questions to throw? Yeah, Mike, how are we doing on time? I'm slipping into Genesis here. I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Please freeze it. <laughs> I thought I was here to dance. What the hell is going on? <laughs> I was talking about dance. Uh, we've got, like, we can take one or two questions. Okay. Anybody have any questions for this? Give it up for this amazing panel. Wow. Anybody have a... Yes, JJ. Louder, please. The relevance of our perception of time 
Speaking of time, speaking of time, uh, the yeah, that's a deep one, man. Yeah. Why do you gotta do that? It's governed by our appetite and needing to pee. <laughs> so relevance of time and your perception? Like, like our perception of time and the relevance of counting our years or counting our months or particularly the structure of our weeks or. Like relevant to what though? Like to like, can you give me an like? I'll take a swing at this, Alec, and then maybe we'll okay. all flow into it. So I have a, an idea that there's like re real time and there's fake time. <laughs> so I think this will make sense as I explain it. Who here felt like yesterday or today was a just the one day? It was about three days or five days in one day? Anybody notice that? Right today. <laughs> today my day yesterday felt like a week in one day it was amazing so why is that versus maybe going through the week back at home if you are you know experienced or have memory of a type of rat race type job right that spinning on a hamster wheel so the fake time this is back to this idea of trying to adhere nature to cycles and uh, repeating patterns as if that's how it really works that always repeats the same pattern and cycle endlessly. Well, when you start your, your week at 8 a.m. on Monday and do the same thing every day till 5 p.m. on Friday, and then the next Monday you do it again, this sort of artificially created repetition that I would liken to running on a hamster wheel, I call this like Kronos time, <laughs> you know? And the, this is not the same as what I call authentic or real time. Real time is not measured even in seconds or the movements of luminaries is really not measured at all, but it's felt and experienced in the change and flow of us as a spiritual being. And that is indicated through experience and learning. So in a place like this, with novel experiences and tons of learning, we actually are on a spiritual level. We have advanced through a lot of real time. And that's why it feels so big and expanded. And the rat race lifestyle of learning nothing new and doing the same thing that you did the week before, day in, day out, month in, month out, that's fake time. And the reason it feels so like it just flashes before your eyes and all of a sudden a year's gone by, in my opinion, is because you didn't really advance in time, any spiritual time. Your true spirit time didn't advance very much at all because you were in this sort of fake, artificially induced stasis of the cycle of the, the week, if that makes sense. Does that kind of speak to your question at all? That was beautiful, brother. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah. Okay, guys. Right. I got one more, I got one more. Could each of you just give me um, a brief, you know, synopsis or something that you got out of the week weekend so far? Just like something that maybe a little light went off or uh, a little uh, interaction you had. Uh, something that maybe uh, has changed you a bit from being here. Alec, you want to start? <laughs> we're doing it. That's, that's it. We're doing it. Like we're we're. This is a perfect representation of living and creating the new world that we want to see. Uh, 
I have had the growing experience. I don't know. I like can't even talk about my cold. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have had the growing ex- experience. I don't know how many can relate of the sort of like AI infiltration of my interpersonal perception, meaning that I sometimes can't remember whether I've actually met someone in person when I've seen them on the computer like <laughs> a lot of times. And so there's something that's getting even more real over time, I would say even over the past like three years, um, in the digital space. It feels more real, more comfortable, more familiar, and less discernible in some ways from in-person interaction. Um, like I'm meeting Tom Cowan this weekend at the Western Price conference and I, I'm not sure if I've met him before <laughs> because I see him all the time on the computer. That's strange, right? Because the computer and video conferencing and whatever used to feel very different, I think, than in-person interaction. And so one of my huge takeaways is actually the, the exhale, the relief um, on a soul level to, to recognize that no, actually in-person human co-presence is totally different, <laughs> you know, than the, than the computer experience. And that just feels like, oh, like, thank God. That's still true. So I'm very grateful, yeah, to, to be here with you all. I feel like this is the kind of village I want to live in. <laughs> it's, I've been so uh, thrilled. Like, everybody's, you know, very much on, there's, there's a very common wavelength that we all have, and I think a, a safety and a comfort in that. And uh, really everybody that I've met is like a friend. And uh, I think that this gives me great, I don't really like the word hope, um, but, but knowing, right? I, I think one of the things that I say is that this generation, like what we're doing right here, our generation, the work that we're doing, this is the heavy lifting. Like we are the karmic cleanup crew. We are the ones who are shifting these patterns, who are shifting these beliefs, who are unblocking the blocks, who are branching out, who are choosing life and helping the people around us to do that. And uh, and that's not easy to do. You know, many of us were like the only ones in our family that didn't, you know, go along with the program. And so there's a lot of courage that everybody has to be here. And I think we all have that in common, and it's just really heartening to, to be with Tribe. Yeah. Well said, everybody. I'll add to this equation that I've had a feeling at events like this in the past of the sense that all being is present wherever you are present. And so as I go through this new experience with this new tribe, many very few of you have I met in person before. I run into doppelgangers of people from my real life, from back home. And I've had this experience before where when I'm out somewhere new, somewhere far away, I see the archetype or the energy or the feeling or the expression of people that I'm close to or know well back home. And a lot of times at events, especially festivals that are party oriented, you know, some of the versions of the other people in my life that I see their doppelganger, they're, they're not here. <laughs> they're spaced out, they're intoxicated, they're very ill or whatever the case may be. But it's been really beautiful and I think extremely influential beyond our ability to perceive on the entire fractal of life and nature that every expression of self and every expression of archetype and, and energy and life force that I've encountered here, even if it's familiar or similar or even a doppelganger, 
it's been the healthiest, most present version of that energy that I've ever run into. So, you know, as they say in like the legal realm, all present and accounted for, here it truly feels like all present and accounted for. And I'm just really grateful to witness that. And I'm excited that this is the beginning that we will build more and there'll be events in other parts of the country. In Miami. <laughs> in Missouri. <laughs> and thank you. You've been a great captive audience. Thank you to this awesome panel. It's thank been you. a great experience. Thank you to everyone here that put on music in the sky, too. This is Thank you, Cooks. And thank you, Fire. Kelly needs to get to the fire now. Thank you. And that's a wrap.